Hello, Marvelites! You're listening to This Week in Marvel, and I'm Ryan Panagos, a.k.a. Agent M. And I'm Lorraine Sink. Yeah, this is This Week in Marvel, and it's episode 450. And like a good comic, when it hits an anniversary, like every 50 issues or 50 episodes, we got something special for you this week. Normally, we're talking about all the things happening this week in Marvel, whether it's comics, movies, games, TV shows, and more. But Lorraine, we have something special this week. Yeah, we wanted to make sure we continue our conversation from last week about addressing racism in our society and our media. So today we have the incomparable Angelique Rocher, Marvel host. Hello. Hi. Yeah, I think it is super, super, super important to make sure we continue that conversation. Y'all started last week. And really, honestly, this is only the beginning. Angelique, what's going on? So uh, as both of you know, but some of your audience may not know, I am a host for Marvel, but I host two other Marvel podcasts, Marvel's Voices and Women of Marvel. And today I wanted to do a little Marvel's Voices spotlight on TWIM. For anyone who has not yet listened to your wonderful podcast, Marvel's Voices, what is it all about? Marvel's Voices spotlights diverse storytellers and creators across the Marvel universe. Movies, comics, novels, everything. Like literally, if it has Marvel on it, we get to talk to those creators and talk about their stories. And so today I wanted to share a couple of highlights of our past two seasons to celebrate some incredible black creators and super fans. So tell us a little bit, who, who'd you bring on the show today? I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm looking at the list. I'm like, I'm very excited. I want you to explain uh, who you got because these are going to be really fun snippets from those chats. Um, well, you know what, I first want to say it was really, really hard just narrowing down the past two incredible seasons, but I have four amazing voices for you guys to listen to, Jesse Holland, Francesca Ramsey, Vida Ayala, and Jason Reynolds. First up, Jesse Holland Jr., which I honestly tell you, a good friend of mine, and I, beyond being just an awesome, huge Marvel fan and just epic super nerd. He's had a pretty incredible career. Uh, He's a writer and a journalist who's worked as a congressional reporter, a White House reporter, and a Supreme Court reporter. But in 2017, he wrote the novel Black Panther, Who is the Black Panther, which was the first novelization of the origin story of the Black Panther and an adaptation of Regal Hudlin and John Romita Jr.'s 2005 Black Panther origin story of the same name. We started off talking about his work as a race and ethnicity reporter for the AP. Okay, so let's have this conversation. Okay, (laughs) Okay. Because I think there's something so misunderstood, Mm -hmm. yet beautifully poignant about this concept of race and And ethnicity. Yeah. Because being from the South, because I'm from Louisiana, you're from Mississippi. Right. And Memphis. And Memphis, yes. I want to make sure I put both of those in there. Please do. (laughs) Um, For those who don't necessarily have a frame of reference for race and ethnicity and why that would be a particular beat to have, uh, what does that mean? Well, I mean, especially when you're talking about uh, mainstream media, and I want to be specific to talk and say that we're talking about mainstream media, not the black press, which has Mm -hmm. its own 
system that's right. existed forever, going all the way back to Frederick Douglass and the North Star. So the problem became that the mainstream media, and just to be specific, this is the media that's read by the, the then white majority of the United States, they never covered minority communities. And they never cared to until the 1960s when they started hiring civil rights writers, which they called race writers. So the beat started in the mainstream media when the northern newspapers, the New York Times, Boston Globe, started sending writers down to the south to cover the civil rights movement. These, quote unquote, race writers would go down to the south and cover the African-American civil rights movement and African-American communities related to the civil rights movement. Mm-hmm. And so they, start, they started hiring African-American reporters to cover the civil rights movement. Well, once the civil rights movement ended, instead of becoming race writers, they became urban affairs writers. After a few years, the urban affairs writers began to realize that urban affairs meant more than just covering inner cities. Mm. So the title shifted, once again, back to uh, writers who cover race. But Hispanics are not a race. They're an ethnicity. And we don't, in this industry, we don't cover just African-Americans. We cover African-Americans, Latinos, Latinxes. Uh, we cover Asians. We cover Native Americans. I don't cover mm. just what African-Americans do. Now, I will tell you, that's my main focus because I'm so into African-American history. Uh, but see, what I, what I do now, as well as journalism, is I take some of those skills I picked up finding the story, telling the story, and apply that to history. Especially African American history. What I did with one of my books, which is called The Invisibles, The Untold Story of African American Slaves in the White House, there are a lot of facts out there about the presidents and the, the ones who owned their own slaves and the ones who brought them to Washington. There are a lot of facts about that. But no one had bothered trying to take those facts and turning it into a story. Because they all were sitting there in these individual pockets. Exactly. And it was never a priority for anyone to link together this narrative. And I think that's that's so very similar to this idea of what we were talking about, about Stan and Kirby's Black Panther versus Priest's Black Panther versus Hudlin's Black, Black Panther. Panther right. Which, oh, good Lord, Hudlin's Black Panther. Yes. Um, <laughs> because it was so vastly different to have a director mm-hmm. in the writer's chair for those books and also a true fan, right? Because right. at that point, you go from having the creator like Stan and Jack to having a man who read it as a kid exactly. who now has his turn. Like, and you now have the writers like Hudlin and Narcisse and Tanahasi yep. who can go, okay, it's my turn. This is the way the story has to go. Right. And I say all that to say, your work in creating this larger narrative being the first time that Black Panther was ever novelized, it brought together those concepts, brought together these fundamentals in such a way where suddenly folks who had never read a comic book in their entire life could access something that, to be very clear, is extremely overwhelming with the history of Black Panther and the culture of Wakanda. Well, so I have to share this with you. Um, I the, the novel actually was nominated for an NAACP Image Award. And 
I sent a note to Reginald Hudland on Facebook because my novel, the the backbone of my novel is that first run of his mm-hmm. in Marvel Comics, the Who is the Black Panther? So volume run. one. Volume one. That original run that I read, I bought, I owned, when I owned the original copies when it came out. I read that. And I sent a note to Reginald Hudland saying, Hey, once again, thank you for doing this because I wouldn't be here if I didn't have that that original foundation that you had. What was it about Reginald Hudlin's run in particular? And what was it about volume one? Because this is just right. volume this one. This is just volume one. Right. That called to you because you've been reading, you've been reading since the 80s. So since you, the 80s, exactly. You've had a, lo- you've had a long relationship mm-hmm. with T'Challa and Wakanda, and you've seen it go through, like, throughout the Marvel And, and limited series as well, yeah. Um, the Marvel Comics Presents series, the uh, the um, the Black Panther limited series where he fights the white supremacists in Africa, I, I own all of them. I've been reading them forever. But, you know, Hudlin's work was the first time someone had really bothered to retell the origin and make it relevant now. From the beginning... The what Stan Lee and Jack Kirby, this is the by the way, this is the brilliance of Stan Lee and Jack Kirby that they came up with an origin for Black Panther that stuck from the 60s all the way to Reginald Hudlin. It was so powerful, T'Challa, the, the character, the archetype of T'Challa was so powerful, no one touched what they did. It was so powerful that when I first read it, I could hear it. It, as he's telling his story as, exactly. in my ears. Exactly. So Reginald Hudlin really is the first time someone looked at that original story and said, let's modernize it. Let's turn it into something where we understand right now what's going on. Because I mean, if you look at the original story from, from uh, 1966 and Fantastic Four, T'Challa's smoking a cigarette. I mean, th- these are things that we know that It was would, very culturally significant, would, not necessarily... Culturally mm. a modern. We'll, yes. say, we'll say modern. So Reggie took this character, took this grand archetype that Stanley and, and Jack Kirby came up with, and he kept the best parts and modernized the rest. He didn't change it. T'Challa all of a sudden is not bitten by a radioactive panther. He didn't just rewrite it. You know somebody put that down on a whiteboard once upon a time and they (laughs) felt like that was the answer to everything. But he takes that story and it turns into this incredible mythology that yeah. we see today, we recognize the T'Challa from 1966, but we also recognize what the young T'Challa is going through in the 90s because Hudlin made it relevant. But so it was just incredible. But that's Hudlin's perspective. That's Hudlin's eye. Like, my hat trick is like, so you know he directed House Party, right? Like, <laughs> it's like you always have to be like, that vibe was so 90s. And so it, that, that made it a great launching point for the novel because I could then take what Hudlin did and then rewrite it for 2017. Just don't don't change any of the major ideas because I think that the Hudlin origin will also last for another 50 years. Take that idea and take the best parts of what Stan and Jack did, take some of the work that Don McGregor did, take some of the work that Priest did, and combine it all into one narrative for people who've never read a comic book. 
or never will read a comic book. And so th- this that was my mission in my head. My goal with Black Panther novel was to take the people who are walking through a bookstore, ignored the comic book carousel, but heard about Black Panther and want to know who this character is. Be able to explain this character in prose to people so they understand why we're so obsessive about this character. And then they can go see a movie, see a movie about this character. And T'Challa is the same in the novel as he is in the movie, as he is in the comic book. That's how powerful that character is. Next, we have some thoughts from comedian, writer, and content creator Francesca Ramsey. I spoke with Francesca right before the release of her book. Well, that escalated quickly, Memoirs and Mistakes of an Accidental Activist. In the book, she talks about her life and her work, including the work she's done on TV and on YouTube, educating people on racial injustices and the importance of allyship. She and I got deep into how she explains really tough concepts to her audiences and the importance of representation in media. What's interesting to me, or not necessarily interesting, but I feel it is often disappointing that it seems there are some white people who don't understand that. And I think it's largely because they are so used to seeing themselves everywhere. And they're so used to seeing this diversity of representation so much so that no one is saying, oh, well, you are uh, a teacher, a white teacher. You must be like this because I saw this on television. Right. It's yeah. Like, no one's ever going to do that. No like, one that's... is going to compare them to like some archetype that they saw on television because we innately understand that those characters are not a representation of all white people but when you are an lgbtq person or a person of color or a person with a disability which real talk people with disabilities are just not getting the visibility that they deserve unless it's like a sob story or a sort like a story that's just about their disability we don't where is the romantic comedy that has a you know a girl with a disability and it's like not about like she finds love even though even right just you know like because it's an affliction right and it's interesting because you uh you went to new york comic-con last year um and the question that you asked, can you name seven superheroes of color? Which is very interesting because you People didn't say struggled. comic book. You didn't say comic book superheroes. You said just superheroes. Like you gave them as much Door room. wide open. I actually, after I watched it, I was like, okay, Anjali, can you made seven? Now, of course, I work at Marvel. Right. I named 20. Okay. Um, but also... But also you were probably looking for those characters because you wanted to see them. Mm -hmm. And I think that that speaks to a broader point of the fact that we as as black women, as women of color, we've always been able to relate to somebody else's story. Right. Mm. We've always been able to watch a show with people that don't look like us and say, like, I can relate to these themes. And there are lots of people in this world who've never had to do that. Yeah. And so for them, they're like, well, I why I, I remember when there were all these conversations about why don't we have more superheroes of color? Yeah. There were people who were like, well, why do we have to race bend these characters? Why can't they just stay <laughs> how they are? And it's like, you don't understand the significance because you're so used to a superhero that looks like you. Right. And I think that's interesting going back to the New York Comic Con um, and why it's so important, right? Like why diversity is so important. Like When you think about 
Um, we now have America Chavez, who is a queer Latinx character. You now have uh, Ms. Marvel is now mm-hmm. Muslim, Muslim American. Yes. You have Miles Morales, who's Afro Latino. You have uh, Danielle. You have you have all these amazing different characters outside of Luke Cage and outside of Storm, right? Um, which used to be the one and only, right? And you have depictions of Misty Knight um, and these very amazing characters, but you have them in comics, right? Like you have them from this inception that a, a 10 year old can pick up. Do you feel like that that makes a difference in that issue of representation? It makes a difference absolutely. I mean, there have mm-hmm. been studies that have shown that it doesn't just make a difference for children of color, it makes a difference for white children as well. Mm-hmm. To just see someone that looks different from them and to realize that they can connect with their story, that they can be inspired by them, and that in many ways we are different, but in many ways we are the same. Yeah. And so I think often we don't realize how many times, how much those representations are influencing us, whether it is the way we feel about our hair or our skin or our bodies, that if we don't see people that look like us or we don't see depictions of ourselves that are smart and hardworking and beautiful, that we can think, well, I need to have straight hair in order to be be beautiful. I wish my nose was slimmer. Oh, I wish that my lips, I remember getting teased because my lips were so full. And now everybody wants full lips. People are spending you can't see my face but i'm making (laughs) hopefully you can hear the sound in my face okay there are some people who are spending buku dollars to have lips that look like mine but why is that because now we are seeing that that full lips are beautiful and sexy and desirable but Mm. there was a time i didn't wear lip color until I was in my 20s because I was afraid that wearing colorful lipstick was going to make my lips look huge and that they would bring so much attention and so it's like when I saw somebody else doing it when a makeup artist did my did my makeup for a shoot and I remember being like no 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 no, you cannot put that lipstick on me and then she did and it looked so beautiful and then I got messages from fans who were like, I never would have worn those colors because I felt this way about myself. So we need to see somebody else do it. We need to see somebody else in a positive light that looks like us yeah. in order to feel good about ourselves and to step outside of ourselves and maybe do something that's a little bit out of our comfort zone and, and embrace who we are, which is something, unfortunately, that's difficult for everybody, no matter what you look like. But it's especially difficult if there are these messages all the time telling you that you're ugly or you can't wear your hair like that in class because it's distracting yeah. or you can't wear your hair like that at work because it's not professional or, God forbid, you're justifiably angry about something and I feel uncomfortable because Lord knows a black woman who has an opinion and is angry, rightfully so sometimes, is a threat to a lot of people. Yeah. Um, and so I do think that seeing these representations in comic books or on the big screen, it really makes a difference. And I'm I'm so inspired that Marvel is, you know, kind of taking the mantle in that respect. Yeah. This 2019 conversation with Vida Ayala is another one I really wanted to share. Similar to Francesca, Vida saw the importance of representation in media fairly young. In 2018, they joined the Marvel family and in 2019 wrote their own story arc for the Age of X-Men event, Age of X-Men Prisoner X. 
a story arc about their favorite X-Men character, Bishop, beginning with Bishop in prison. So I grew up in New York City. Anyone from New York is going to tell you they came from New York, right? Um, I grew up in the Lower East Side, and my experience was one that was incredibly, I hate the word diverse, but this is the only kind of instance where it makes sense, right? The population was very diverse. I grew up in a neighborhood with mostly brown people, you know, uh, a lot of Puerto Rican people, black people, Korean people, Indian people. I went to school with mostly brown people. You know, I hung out in Chinatown, which was mostly brown people. Um, And so it always, like, even as a little kid, it really confused me that the, the ratio of brown people in media was not the same as I was seeing every day. And I I wasn't consciously looking for it, right? I'm, I was a kid. As an adult, I can look back and go, ah, oh, I was searching for myself. And like, <laughs> inside is 2020. But, you know, seeing those first two comics, I, I saw three people who, two of them are actually characters of color and one of them I mistook for a character of color. <laughs> I mean, um, it's fine. It's fine. You know, we, we project who we are and what we see and what we value onto media. Yeah, and it's also, I, having my experiences, understood that people of color legitimately come in all colors and shapes and sizes. And so, to me, the default wasn't white. Um, and I really, really connected with that because I was I was searching for it. I was hungry for it. You know, I... I grew up in a Trek household, too. So, like, there were brown people kind of there. There was always at least one. <laughs> um, Thank you, Nichelle Nichols. Nichelle Nichols, you know, shout out, shout out to, you know, LeVar Burton. <laughs> oh, and, and you know, I'm a big Klingon fan because I always saw them as space Puerto Ricans. So, you know. Wait, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, no, no. Okay, I understand. They're Nichelle. very, they're very loud. Uh, space Puerto Ricans. They're very loud. Uh, they have music that other people don't understand, but is actually incredible. Uh, and they're also some of the smartest people uh, in the galaxy. People sleep on them because they seem aggressive, but their technology is so dope that they haven't actually had to change it in over a thousand years, and they incorporate other technology into their tech. I'm just saying, Space Puerto Ricans, we're and innovative. You know <laughs> what? You never want to fight a Puerto Rican, and you never want to fight a Klingon. Straight up. But super about the community, right? Oh, always. Always. And about tradition. About tradition. And food. And food. Wow. I see I'll be all right with the gach. Your I'm theory. Not... <laughs> I, I, see your, I see your theories. <laughs> I just see Puerto Ricans everywhere. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I grew up in a household that I was lucky that my mother is a, she's a huge nerd. Yeah. Huge nerd. And Trek was like her entry point, right? Because she was older than I was, so she understood that also the people that were playing these alien races were representing yeah Earth races. <laughs> I mean, my mom was the same way. My mom got me into Star Trek. Yeah, it's. Imp- I think we talk about representation all the time, and I think that like even mistaken representation can be really important. <laughs> you see yourself in something, and suddenly you believe that you have a place, and like you know, bringing it back to like now and to kind of signal boosting kind of voices we are at a point where we can just have it we don't have to be like the krill shrimp and stuff and like <laughs> we don't we don't have to guess uh when we're looking at xena warrior princess anymore right you can just look at something and be like ah there are lots of different kinds of people and the voices that are behind them are reflective of that and i think yeah. that's really cool i it was so wild when i was a little kid my imaginary friend was Storm, <laughs> like straight up, <laughs> like, but like 90s X-Men, like, like that Storm. <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, would you I, Would you like her to join the conversation? Oh my God! I don't make me do voices. I'll do them. I mean, um, <laughs> so Storm was was your best friend. Was my imaginary friend, um, and to be able to kind of use the connection that I've had with these characters for most of my life, and and talk about some of the things that I find important through them has been really incredible. I think that you know all all stories that really connect with people have something to say. Yeah. Uh, I'm not saying like an agenda. What I'm saying is that like you are using these characters to examine something about the human condition or the mutant condition as it were. Um, and to be able to do it with a character like Bishop who I've connected to since I was, I don't know, seven, eight years old uh, was really something special. Uh, he's very singular to me, not just because he was one of my first comic characters, but because of what his character has been through. And I really wanted to examine that and then talk about kind of the larger context of what it means to be someone like him. Even within a mutant community, he's very isolated and very different. What were the things for you when you got this opportunity to write Bishop that you felt like had to exist both within Bishop as a character but also within the storyline? You know, I wanted to talk about why it is that someone like Bishop would be going to jail, right? Mm. Um, I wanted to talk about the different consequences that people face for the same action. I wanted to talk about how that feels from his perspective, right? Because we talk about those issues all the time and we can talk about, you know, treating people fairly and justice and all this stuff. But what does it feel like? How like that helpless, lonely feeling is something I really wanted to talk about. Um, I said this on a, on a panel, I think, at Emerald City. But to me, mutants and X-Men, um, one of the things that I think are fundamental to them uh, and that one of the things that works in their metaphor is loneliness. They are all like there's this feeling of other that is so isolating that even amongst each other, they're they're so desperate for like connection, you know, um, and they're in in Prisoner X, I think it's the third page of issue one. Herman Peralta, who is a genius, forever a genius, incredible artist. Um, you know, I, I described a splash page of Bishop being put into his cell. I thought it was really important to start. I'm showing you that you've put this man in a cage. This is what you've done to a person who even, you know, even non-reasonable people would say that that's this is not why you put someone in jail. <laughs> um, and I wanted to show how that made him feel. And I was like, he looks lonely and scared, but also he's done this before. And Herman came back with like the thunder. And I was like, this is this is this the center of this story, this feeling and why it's not OK and why he shouldn't have to go through this alone. Um, and then I think the rest of it was kind of building on that. Um, I try very hard to, in in a first issue, put that center of the story in there with the character that I want to explore it with. And so, yeah, with Bishop, it was this loneliness and isolation, but this also like, yep, I've done this before. This has happened over and over again. Last but certainly not least, we have author and poet Jason Reynolds. Jason is a New York Times best-selling novelist, and in 2017, Jason brought his talents to Marvel, writing the groundbreaking young adult novel, Miles Morales, Spider-Man. This is a novel that I have literally purchased and gifted to all of my nieces and nephews. I loved it just that much. 
Jason and I talked about what it was like to flesh out Miles Morales, a young Afro-Latino kid from Brooklyn, and his voice in a way that was unique and very specific to his culture. And we also talked about Jason's motivation of reaching kids through his writing and helping them learn to love to read. When we, when we say that we're going to have a, a black and brown Spider-Man, what does it mean? Right. These are the questions that I'm asking. Right. Like, what does that mean? It doesn't mean that we get to paint Peter's face brown. Right. And and and, and this is just me being completely honest, I, I because I only this is all I got. I don't really know how to do it no other way. But it, it means more than that. We have to we have to deal with the fact that the, the coating of his skin shifts the entire environment. Right. So so there are new questions that we have to ask. Number one, if you are in a black well, his mother is Puerto Rican, his father is black. If you are in a black and brown household in Brooklyn, right, or in any urban space in America, and you tell your mother or your father that you're going to save the world, there's a good chance that your mother and father at that age is going to say, before they say, yes, son, you'll change the world someday, if you my mom, you're going to say, listen, that's all well and dandy, but first you need to, you need to save these grades, right? You need to save, save yes. these grades, save this household, save your block, save your neighborhood, save your people. Then we can worry about the world. Like that is that that is the way that conversation goes. Number two, I wanted to know what does it feel like to be um, to be a superhero in a neighborhood where where the superheroes you're used to don't wear capes. You know, your mom and your and your old your OGs in the block and the survivor's guilt that comes with that. If you come from my neighborhood, right, where Kevin Durant is the one who sort of makes it out, how does Kevin Durant feel on Thanksgiving Day when he come back to walk a mill, he come back to his to his apartment, to where he don't live there no more, but when he come back to that neighborhood and everybody else is still there and you got to deal with, I mean, myself on Thanksgiving, when I'm at my family's houses or we, you know, are hanging out and having meals, I got to sit at the table as one of them and different. Right, being looked at as different, even though I'm still one of them, because my situation isn't the same. Right, so we have to deal with the survivor's remorse that so many brown black people feel when they achieve any level of superpower. Right, and then, and then lastly, I wanted to talk about like E15, 16 with superpowers. Like, I, look, I love Peter Parker. Shout out to Peter Parker. No one can ever take anything from him. You know, arguably, it was the first time we saw a superhero that was a normal teenager. But the part of him that I found to be a little abnormal um, is the advice that Uncle Ben gives him, right, that he takes to heart, right, this idea that, like, with great power comes great responsibility, a beautiful sentiment that no teenager would ever take, ever. If you were to tell me at 15 that you were going to give me the ability to fly or jump to the tops of buildings, superhuman strength, the ability to camouflage myself, the ability to have hypersensibilities and hypersensitivity to, to whatever is coming uh, that is negatively going to affect me. And you say, now, here's what I'm giving you. My response is not going to be, thank you, I'm going to be so much more responsible with it. Instead, it's going to be like, yo, I'm about to hustle everybody at the basketball court. I'm about to figure out how to start. Like, a great scene, by the way. Yeah, I'm, I'm, but, that, but, that's, but that's what <laughs> that's I would real. do. That's real. So these are the things that I, that I, that I was sort of approaching the story the story with you know for you and just kind of in your work and your process and how you've gotten here where does this all go do you just keep writing non-boring books for like 
like, which is fine, which I think yeah. is great. Please keep writing non-boring books. I yeah. think it's phenomenal. I don't know. I mean, great. at the end of the day, at the end of the day, I think the one thing I, I always try to tell people oh, that I even think about often is that it ain't got nothing to do with the books. I love books. I love to write books. I love, to, but really, I'm just a storyteller. I put it where I put it wherever I can put it. You know what I mean? You know, like they say, put some paint where it ain't. Wherever it ain't, I'm put it there. It wasn't in books, so I wrote the books. You know, like and I and I will continue to do so. But I want to be clear, like this isn't some, um, this ain't no cash grab. It ain't no. It's nothing like that for it's me. Just you. I love and I love kids. So like I, I truly, truly, truly listen. At this point in my career, I tell everybody I don't have to write books anymore. Right, like the truth of the matter is, is that I use these books now as just access cards in order to get into spaces where there are thousands and thousands of kids, so I can look them in the face and say I love you, in the face, look them in the face, right? And I can show up to their schools or to their community centers, to the prisons, wherever they are, and I can come in all the way me, right? Yeah. Tattoos and hair and sneakers and all the t-shirt and all the things, and walk in there and say, "This is it's me, and, and I'm you, right? And we good, no matter what, right?" I just use the books as leverage to do that at this point. Well, and I think there's a, a significant thing about being a person of color that shows up in a space where you generally are not. Yeah. And showing this could also be you. It's you. I'm not exceptional, right? And this is what I tell them all the time. You know, I don't believe in exceptionalism. I'm not. I'm not. Because to be exceptional means that, that then I separate myself from you. Nah. This us, right? I literally am writing your story, which means that if your story doesn't exist, then I have no value. So my job is to basically, like, my value is literally rooted in your value. And, and like, in, in a concrete way, yeah. the value of my life is rooted in the value of yours. But I got to look you in the face and let you know that the books ain't enough. And so what happens is we write, we write these books and the books get praised. And the person who writes this book gets to go off to the hills, gets to buy a big house and cool out and pretend as though he or she has done enough. It's not enough. This baby's dying. Right? It's not enough. Yes, it's a wonderful thing that Miles exists. It's a wonderful thing that all these books exist in the world. But imagine what changes if Judy Bloom shows up to your school. You see what I'm saying? Like it change. And imagine, because when, when I show up, we talk about all kind of stuff, right? They're like, yo, what kind of car you drive, yo? Yo, you rich? What kind of sneakers? Where you get them sneakers from? Imagine if you had an opportunity to ask Judy Bloom what kind of car she drive. We see that as something that is gratuitous and silly, but the truth is it's game-changing to have a human moment with a hero. Yeah, and, well, and I think there's this, there's this, and I don't even want to call it complex, but there's this beautiful reality that literature can root us into the value of who we are in such a way where it changes how we walk yeah. in the world. Yeah. Um, and, that, and I think there's a, there's a commonality very strongly between comic books and, and what you do in every single book that you write. Mm. Because when you look at Stanley and Jack Kirby, they didn't see superheroes that were rooted in New York that reflected their, you know, their values and who they were, so they created them. Mm -hmm. When you look at, you know, milestone media and the creation of Static and the Dakota verse, when you when you look at so many amazing characters like Nettie Corfo writing Shuri, um, like Vita Ayala who's writing Livewire, there is such a power in bridging and opening up the possibilities of pathways. Mm-hmm. And I think it's incredible because you never really know the ripple effects. You never know that kid who 
is in Idaho who ran across your book in a library who is going through a moment mm-hmm. who becomes the next state senator. That's it. Because that's, I mean, that's how we are with Langston. That's how we are with Baldwin. It's oh how God. we are. With um, all of them. Yeah. Oh my I mean, at the end of the day, story is the, the most human thing we have. Right. This is this is this is our sweet spot. Like the story. I, I tell my little brother and all the kids out there when I'm when I'm with the young folks, I tell them all of your shoes in your closet, right, all the fancy things that you want. Nothing will ever be more expensive than your story. Nothing will ever be more valuable than your story. I think, you know, Alice Walker, mm-hmm. uh, Alice Walker has a she wrote the um, the forward for Zora Hurston's last book for Barry Coon. Mm-hmm. And the last page of this forward. She's talking about the black experience in America, historically. Yeah. And she says, our experience here has been, you know, a complicated one, right? But she says, um, but but we go on um, carrying our wounds and our medicines as we go. And there's this idea that we are carrying our wounds and our medicines, right? I have, I have my poison and my antidote. I have both of those things, right? All of us have both of those things, but it's, a, it's, it's incumbent upon us. To share those things, to expose those wounds, and to share the antidote, knowing that we are, we can be self healing. It's like the it's like the uh, a famous um, <laughs> famous folk tale, black African American folk tale. Where I can't I can't really say what it's called because we can't because it's PG. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> but there's a but it's basically this part where you know the idea is that that God like messed up when he was making when he or she was making when it was making black people. Mm. Right? And that's the folk tale about us. Like God messed up when God made black people, and uh, it sounds like the Haitian folk tale about baking the cake. It's so interesting. I don't know it, but this one it, it basically it basically says it basically um, the black people who are made says that's because black people made themselves, right? And it's this whole sort of idea that like that like yo we. It, we have continued, right? And we continue. Whether you look at Nettie and Roxanne, you look at, you know, Saeed and Danez Smith, and you look, like, mm-hmm. these are these are black people who are making themselves. Like, I choose. Yeah. I get to choose who I am in the world and that that does not detract from, from the history of who we've been. I get to continue to push the line, right, with on the continuum, in the tradition, and shift and change and manipulate that tradition into other traditions and push the line, right? Yeah. And that's where we are. It's wonderful. Thank you so much again to our previous guests, Jesse Holland, Francesca Ramsey, Vita Ayala, and Jason Reynolds. Those are from some of our old episodes, but you can hear our new season with new voices coming out this fall. Uh, Angelique, those are so great. Thanks so much for being on the show and and sharing those conversations with us. Of course. Thank you for having me on the show. Um, You know, I'm a a big fan of TWIM and, you know, it's y'all are, you know, 450 episodes in. That's that's a big deal, right? Yeah. yeah. It's weird. It's very weird. Well, you can go listen to all 449 of these other episodes, and you can go back and listen to Jesse, Francesca, Vita, and Jason's full episodes and all the past episodes of Marvel's Voices wherever you get podcasts. Oh, and I wanted to mention, so some news for this week. There's a new batch of free comics on Marvel Unlimited highlighting black creators and stories, including the comic based off your podcast, Angelique, Marvel's Voices number one. 
I mean, uh, how cool was it when you found out that uh, Chris Robinson was putting together this whole book? I was without words. Uh, it was it was really really dope, and I and I thought it was really great that it came out in an anthology, and as many creators as possible were involved in the process to tell stories that they wanted to tell about the characters that they got to choose, and so. It was it was pretty spectacular, but also the response to the actual book has been phenomenal. Yeah, my my wife Elizabeth, whom the two of you know, she is sort of like six months behind all her comics reading because we have a baby and she wrote her just finished writing her second novel and all this other stuff. So she just got to Marvel's voices in her stack and we were bathing the baby the other night and she had that she had just read that and she's like the marvel's voices was so good she, I, she's like my favorite story was the one about uh from the spider's point of view and i was like that was a great one do you know who wrote it and she's like uh no let me look at the credits and it was written by our friend and twim co-host james monroe Iglehart. and i was like because james rules and that book is terrific yeah that that story is one of my personal favorites yeah it was really good um, but so these free comics are amazing. There's a ton of, of books on here. We can't list the whole, the whole lot of them because that would take probably half an hour for us to talk about them and, and stuff. But there's going to be a full list on Marvel.com. Angelique, Lorraine, do you have any that you want to spotlight from this list? Oh, uh, this is such a good list. All right. If I have to spotlight. OK, I'm going to pick three because I have to. And three is a good number. Um, so one, Black Panther, Long Live the King which is Black Panther, Long Native King, number one through six, written by one of my favorite, 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 favorite authors, Nettie Okorafor, who is just, uh, just, uh, And then Ironheart, volume one, Those with Courage, uh, which is written by Eve Ewing. And it's Ironheart 2018, uh, one through six. Go get it. Love it. Know it. Like, it's such a great, like, being in Chicago with Shuri is, like, one of my favorite, favorite things. And then last but not least, um, go check out Black Panther World of Wakanda. It was one through six, written by Ta-Nehisi Coates, Roxane Gay, Yona Harvey, amongst other amazing folks uh, with such incredible art. I think Aletha Martinez is part of that, Afua Richardson. Like, just, it's such, yeah, the crew who did all of that is just so amazing. And it's just one of my favorite, 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 favorite arcs. Yeah, I want to, I'm obviously going to say Marvel's Voices, um, duh, that's just a given. But I also wanted to uh, say Shuri, Volume 1, The Search for Black Panther, uh, also by Nettie Akorafor, uh, which is phenomenal. It takes a look at her uh, more ancestral magic, uh, which is really, really cool. Also, since you did three, I'm going to round it out with Adam, Legend of the Blue Marvel, because he is, fight me, one of the most powerful characters in the Marvel Universe. This guy has moved in freaking asteroid across space. Um, it's written by Kevin Graveau with art by Matt Broom. And it's great. Go read it. The first five issues of that are there. All right. And then I'm going to take three because I like the rule of threes. I'm going to say you, everyone has to read Black Panther Killmonger by any means necessary, which is the 2018 Killmonger series uh, written Oof. by Brian Edward Hill. One of my all-time favorite comics, like hands down, it is in my 
you know, like it's on my my like favorite nation bookshelf of like all my favorite books. I, I will read that probably every year from now on. It is one of the best books we've put out in a long time. There are a ton of books in here by Dwayne McDuffie, which makes me so happy because I love Dwayne's work. There's a bunch. I'll pick one, which is Damage Control, the first four issues of limited series uh, that Dwayne did. It is hilarious and it is just terrific. Dwayne um, has a lot of work in this list that everybody will love. And then, of course, Black Panther Volume 1, The Client from the 1998 Marvel Knights Black Panther series written by Christopher Priest, which you're going to read that and then you're going to be like, oh, I will not stop until I read this entire run because that's how good it is. I knew you would pick that. And that's why I left it for you. I was I was going back and forth between that and Blue Marvel, but I knew I was like, Ryan's going to choose The Client because Ryan always chooses The Client. Because yeah. it's great. And Christopher <laughs> Priest is great. So, like, what are you going to so do? Good. Agreed. Well, also, fully agree on that Killmonger run. Oh, yeah. Oh, it is a spicy meatball. Yeah. It is. It was one of the first. It was it, when I first got to Marvel, it was one of the first books that, like, came out almost consecutively with me being there. And I was like, yeah. This is how I want to walk in the door. Uh, it was it was absolutely phenomenal. Heck yeah. So those are great books. You can find the full list on marvel.com. And all you got to do is download the Marvel Unlimited app on your device with a big button that says free. Read them comics. We make it real easy. All right, Angelique, thanks again. Uh, reminder, everyone, go check out Marvel's Voices and Women of Marvel. Get those episodes wherever you get your audio. Uh, and that's a wrap for this week's show. This episode of This Week in Marvel was produced by Persia Verlin, MR Daniel, Zachary Goldberg, Lorraine Sink, and Ryan Panagos, and Angelique Rochette. Yeah. Our audio development manager is Brad Barton. Jill DeBoff is our director of audio. And special thanks to Angelique and the incredible creators that were spotlighted this week on our show and on Marvel's Voices. I'm Ryan. I'm Lorraine. This is Marvel. Your universe. Your universe.